You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you're a, a guest with us, welcome here. My name is Darcy, and I'm the lead pastor here. And it's, it's really good to be together. And uh, we are back in our series on Mark. We took a little pause, and we're doing... Christmas for a few weeks, and now we are back in the gospel and in chapter 5. And just as a reminder for all of us who have been doing this Mark for a number of months already, Mark is this telling, this, this capturing of Peter's, most likely Peter's firsthand testimony. Mark is recording the stories that Peter has been telling and the experiences that Peter has gone through as a disciple of Jesus, and it is recorded like lightning speed, right? There's so many little stories that have just been one after the other, but it's like, you know, just to give us a frame reference, it's like if you wanted to find out more about September 11th, 2001, okay? That's about the span of distance that we're talking about, and if you were to interview someone who was at least, let's say, like 10 years old in 2001, and you began to ask them, tell me about this experience of September 11th, and they told you all kinds of stuff. And any one of us who were around at that time could tell all kinds of stories and all kinds of details about all that happened that day. Probably all of us would be able to say exactly what was happening in our lives. And you could even go to New York City and you could interview thousands of people who were eyewitnesses to this event called September 11th, 2001. That is what the Gospel of Mark is. It is a first-hand testimony about 20 years out from all of these things that Peter had experienced. And so we've been going through as a church, really slowly, but kind of just taking each story as they come to us in the text. And now we come to this really strange story. Okay, and if you're... If you grew up in the church or, um, you know, you're a Christian, you might have read this story, maybe you've studied it before, and it can almost seem, even as I was reading it this week again, I was like, it can almost seem a little bit normal. But when you pause and begin to listen to some of the details in there, it is creepy, scary, not something that you want to stumble onto in real life, okay? This is a dark, dark story about a demon-possessed man. There's actually, in Matthew's account, there's actually a couple of them, but Mark just focuses on the one. And it's in this series of three stories that we are covering over three Sundays. So before Christmas, we covered the storm and Jesus calming the storm. This is now Jesus calming and working his authority and power over the demonic world. And then next week is a, is a healing where Jesus is able to have power and authority over sickness. So we've got these three stories in a row that Mark is recording on purpose, intentionally, so that we would see, we would walk away, all right? So that like the, the message, the thing to take away from this message and from each of these three passages is that Jesus has power and authority like nobody else. That's what the reader is supposed to walk away from with like super clarity. Jesus has authority and power like nobody else on the planet. 
And so we're given that through this crazy, wild story. And we're going to cover this story in kind of three parts. And it might even feel a little bit more like a, like a teaching sermon, okay? Like there's some sermons that are kind of like inspirational, some that are inspiring. This one's kind of like we got to go into some stuff, okay, to make sense of what's going on. But we're going to start by looking at the kingdom of darkness. That's the first part. The second part is this clash of two kingdoms. And then part three is the kingdom of God and what it looks like. Okay, three parts. Let's start with the kingdom of darkness. And if you have a Bible, we're going to read the first five verses again just to get a sense of what is actually happening here. So in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of, to the country of the Gerasians. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Okay, can you imagine coming upon something like this? Like someone who looks and sounds what we would probably categorize as completely crazy. Someone who is just out there in the hills screaming. And this is... Jesus kind of arriving on this scene with his disciples. If, you, if you'd read in chapter 4, they're actually, they're leaving to get away from the crowds. They're trying to get some R&R, okay? They're looking for a place away from all the busyness of what's going on. They're like, is there a place where we can just rest and kind of rejuvenate? Maybe some of the disciples are thinking, I'm going to do my devotions, get close to Jesus, okay? And then here they come, whether it's in the evening or the nighttime or the morning, it doesn't really clarify, but here they arrive on the scene now on this coastal area that's probably empty and this guy is out there. And like I said, in Matthew's account, there's actually two of them that are there. They are confronted by this manifestation of evil. This presence of evil that has come onto a, a couple of human beings, and specifically in this story, this one human being. And we begin to see we are witnesses to what this manifestation looks like. And it comes to us like in three kind of ways. One of them you'll see is that he's living among the tombs. So in that place, in that location, and in that time period, they would dig tombs into the ground or maybe into the hills and they would bury people in there. Well, this guy is living there. That's where he's like camping out. This is not a normal thing in society to be happening. Not in that time and not in our time today. This is not normal. This is not like human flourishing to see people living among the dead people. Okay. Even when we were in West Africa, when Liz and I were missionaries, kind of on the front line of like spiritual battles, this is not normal for people to do this. We actually, I actually remember an experience like this when I was there. I walked into the village one morning and see a, a man bound and tied up like a goat, 
hands tied together, ankles tied together on the ground, people kind of pushing him around. And I'm like, what? Is, this is not normal. And come to find out, this guy had been in the cemetery in, our, in the village there, digging among the graves all night, and had kind of been in there, and they'd found him in there. And so there's no police, right, within hours of this location. There's, they don't know what to do with this guy, so they just grab him, tie him up, try to figure out what's wrong with him. They didn't know what, and they literally untied him, kicked him in the butt, and he went down the street and was gone. That's how they dealt with it. Well, that is actually not too different from what we see happening in the text here, okay? A really similar thing. The villagers are seeing this guy out in the graves doing something that is not normal, not human flourishing, and they try to bind him, they try to solve the problem, and they can't. And so they just let him be, let him do his thing and try to stay out of his way. So he's living among the dead, he's living away from people. But not only that, the second thing we see is that he has like superhuman strength, right? We just read that in the text that they tried to subdue him. He would break shackles. You can see in verse 4, they tried to tie him up with chains. He is somehow given this ability to like break free no matter what they're doing. They're trying to kind of contain him probably for their own safety, but maybe for his own too, who knows, and they can't do it. He's given this like super strength that comes from this demonic being and beings that live within him. The last thing to notice, which is probably the most important, and it's in verse 5, it says that he is always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And this is something that you'll see um, over and over again in scripture that people who are um, possessed or they are controlled by evil spirits, they are in some way being marred or damaged or destroyed in some way. Some, some, some forms of destruction to the body is actually happening. And in often cases, the demons themselves are trying to kill the people themselves that they are in. God's word is super clear that all people are made in the image of God. That whether it's a baby, whether it's a person impoverished, whether it is a refugee on the run, whether it is a normal everyday citizen in a town, every person has value and is made in the image of God. And let me tell you, Satan hates that. Satan wants no part of that. And what we see here, this manifestation of the demonic world, is Satan trying to like mar an image bearer. Mar a man who's actually made in God's image. And so this kind of like manifestation, you know, these first five verses are, they're like shock and awe, right? They are really powerful to actually see this happening and, and see it recorded. There's no wonder why Mark like recorded this story. When he heard it, he was like, whoa, that's going in. You know, that's going in the gospels to just like see and hear what is actually happening here. And let me say this, that there is something, 
deeper going on here than just like one person, two guys being like demonically possessed or being like influenced by the spiritual powers of darkness. Okay, there is a deeper realm, a deeper story that is happening here. And for many of us, this idea, this realm of the spiritual world, especially the the dark spiritual world, the kingdom of darkness, is not something that we like think and ponder about a lot. You know, it might even be something that we try to ignore. Maybe something that we don't talk about. Maybe you're sitting here even right now and you're like, oh man, we're not going into this today, are we? Like talking about demons and stuff? Like, come on, there's got to be something better to talk about because it seems a little bit, um, it can almost seem like a little hokey or maybe something that is for like a different time period, something that you didn't like even sign up for, right? But there are things that even the non-believing world has to put their faith in that they cannot hold on to and test. Because we come from like a post-enlightenment world where we love things that are science-based. We love things that we can calculate, that we can hold and we can touch. And anything that's in like the non-touchable sphere is a little bit questionable for us. And yet the world around us holds to values, holds to beliefs that not just, you know, Christians or people in religion hold to, but we all actually hold on to these things that we can't see. Trevin Wax puts it this way, demons belong to the realm of haunts or ghosts or UFOs if it is possible that even among people who take the Bible seriously and believe demons to be real, we have psychologized or downplayed the matter to the point of losing any sense of real spiritual warfare. So Trevin is saying like, man, we would rather just not think about this kind of stuff. It kind of sounds like a story, like a fiction, you know, and it doesn't help that we are given all these different images and movies and TV shows and books that we read, that all this kind of stuff is just like, put in the category of fiction. But let me tell you, Jesus believed and acted and interacted with the spiritual world. It was real for him. And throughout scripture, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it comes up over and over and over again. Now mind you, this story that we are studying today is unique among probably all of them, right? We don't see anything like this in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament so extreme. But over and over again, the Word of God points to the reality of a spiritual world, this spiritual kingdom of darkness. Here's a few verses just to kind of Remind us of that. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, so Paul's like, okay, this is, this is the experience that we know. We walk in the flesh. We can hold on to people and hold on to things. But he says, we're not waging war according to the flesh. So the, the real battle that we are experiencing as believers is not a fleshly battle. It's not human on human flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but they are divine power. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ or to the obedience of Christ. So Paul's saying, listen, there is something going on beyond the physical world here, actually. And as believers, we're functioning in the state of the victor, but we're still in this realm of battle and warfare, which often presents itself in ideas. Chip Ingram says this in in his book. He says, the weapons we are used to are not of the flesh. So he's just echoing what Paul is saying. The battle we fight is not of the flesh. And the thoughts and the speculations infiltrating society and the church are not of the flesh. The issues faced by believers are not simply a matter of psychology or socialization. They are not random accidents and they are not fully explainable by organizational dynamics or relational theories. They are spiritual, and the forces behind them are personal. So Chip Ingram is just restating what Paul is saying. He says, listen, the things that happen in our society, the evil that we experience on on a systemic level, there is things going on behind the scenes that are actually driven by spiritual forces. Now it's a, it's a, it's tough to determine sometimes what is actually uh, personal choices that people are making because the Bible is also clear that you can, we are capable of making some really terrible decisions that lead to pain and sin in our own lives. But here we also see that behind systems and behind the global scene, there's spiritual powers at work. And so 1 John 5.19, maybe most succinctly kind of summarize it, summarizes it. It says, we know that we are from God. Okay, so we as believers, we are, we are in relationship with God in this world. But it says, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So in God's divine wisdom, he's allowed us to be his children like Matt was just sharing, secure in our position in Christ, and yet we live in this world that God has actually given allowance and freedom for the demonic kingdom to kind of reign and do its thing. And here we see in the story this clash of these kingdoms. They're coming together right before Jesus' own eyes. And the temptation for us as believers, when it comes to the spiritual world, is to either ignore that it exists or maybe never talk about it, or on the other hand, to maybe go like overboard into it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. We often tend to fall on either side. And we're not called to do that. We're called to actually know that it exists. Know that it is out there. But to function from a position of this kingdom authority that we see in Jesus. And so we're faced with this demonic world. And then we come to verse 6 where we have the clash of these two kingdoms. And I don't know if you've ever seen um, this before. Have you ever watched sumo wrestlers battle? Maybe you've seen that before. It's really fascinating. You should look it up on YouTube if you haven't, okay? These two giant, usually Japanese men, 
in this little circular ring. They kind of prop themselves up. Looks like, I don't know, maybe like 10 feet apart. And then when the signal is given, they just smash into each other. And you can literally hear, because there's so much massive humanity there, you can hear this like slap, right, of these chests coming together. They slap into each other. The battle is on. And if you've ever seen in the beginning stages of this kind of like tournament, there's usually like a really massive, now they're all massive, okay, but this is, there's some more massive than others, a really massive sumo wrestler against kind of like a lower tier, smaller one. And just like, boom, they smash together, but the little guy kind of goes flying, right? That is what we have happening here. There is a clash of kingdoms, Okay, and this is part two here, a clash of kingdoms. And look what it looks like. Verse six. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before them. So this is the same guy that nobody could chain down, that nobody could get control of, that couldn't keep him out of the graves. Now when Jesus shows up, he falls down before Jesus. Verse seven. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you, or I beg you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a, her, a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So here we have in this region, this region that is, is kind of on the backwater side of Israel. There's not a lot of Jewish people there. It's, it's mostly... Um, settled by Romans and other people that would be Gentiles. And, and that's kind of why there's all these pigs there. And we see this like um, clash of two kingdoms. But you can see, as you look at the text more precisely and closely, that the demons are functioning out of a position of loss. They are functioning totally out of a position of submission. And we don't get the full story here in the text, but throughout Scripture, kind of peppered throughout Scripture, we get this understanding of what has actually happened in the spiritual realm already. Now, we just read in 1 John that we are existing as believers with, you know, the, the satanic, de demonic world. We're existing together here on earth. But one thing that the, the demon-possessed man is able to verbalize is that Satan has lost already. And Revelation actually gives us a great insight into this. Revelation chapter 12, you know, if you have time, read the whole chapter. It kind of describes a lot of what's gone on in the, this cosmic battle between uh, the satanic world and God. But let me just read a couple of verses. Verse 10 says this, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down and he accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then in Revelation 20, right near the end, we see the end picture of the spiritual battle. It says, and the devil, this is in verse 10, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The battle is actually won. The battle is actually over. And what we see in the story here is that the demonic world actually knows it. Mark doesn't record it, but Matthew 8, when he records it, his, his version says that they yell back out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So they're asking Jesus, like, is, is, this, is this the second coming? Is this what is going to be, you know, written down in Revelation? They're, they're like, is the timing right? And Jesus says, no, it's not the time actually for that final judgment. But they know that Jesus has all authority. And so we see in verse 7, a couple things just to note, that Jesus has total power and authority over them and over Satan. So we can see in verse 7 that they know it. They say that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. They themselves articulate who Jesus is, that he is the Most High God. But not only that, we see that Jesus has all authority and power. So look again at verse 13. They're asking, they're begging him to be sent into these pigs. They know that they can't actually do anything without Jesus' permission. And what he does in verse 13 is he gave them permission. He actually allows them to do that. And so off they go into the pigs and we see what happens that the pigs end up drowning in the sea. And so Jesus here, again, remember, this is, this is the driving force for Mark recording this story. That Jesus has total authority and power over the kingdom of darkness. So in this clash of kingdoms, we see an overwhelming response to Jesus' authority. And we see recorded that he can actually do what he wants. In a situation where we would be, and rightfully should be, afraid, scared, not knowing what to do, not knowing, like, wh what does this even all mean? Jesus is just, like, cool, calm, deals with the situation, and the demons listen to him 100%. Finally here, and we'll end with this, is part three. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God unleashed. Jesus' ministry and what we've been seeing in the Gospel of Mark, the whole story is all about the kingdom of God breaking into our world. We're getting these glimpses of what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes totally unhindered by sin. Right? When we live out the kingdom of God, we're always like banging up against sin. We're always banging up against like problems because we are human. We are people. But here we see regularly the kingdom of God coming down in total perfection in the person of Jesus. 
And so it gives us a glimpse into what it looks like and what actually happens when it's unleashed before us. And so here we see three lessons, not the only lessons, but three lessons that kind of come to us from the text when the kingdom of God is manifested. And the first one is this, is that Jesus is not safe. Let me read these verses again in verse 14. The herdsmen fled, so those who were taking care of the pigs, pigs are dead, right? So they, are, they run back to town. They fled and told them in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is not safe. Jesus is not safe. So when these villagers come and they actually see what Jesus has done, did you see what they asked him to do? Get away from here. Like, we don't want you near us. What's going through their minds probably like the whole economy has just been like rattled in that region. Just think of it, 2,000 pigs gone. And so they beg him to go. And Ray Ortland says it this way, and I don't know if I had this in the slide or not, but Ray Ortland said, Jesus forced on them a choice, his transformation or their pigs. They preferred their pigs. Sure, their world was dysfunctional, but it was theirs. It was familiar. They preferred it undisturbed. And I know in my own life, that is also the case. I would almost prefer a dysfunctional, undisturbed life. Rather than holding on to Jesus because I think, man, he's like, he should bring me safety. He should bring me just clarity. He should bring like a smoothness to my life. What actually happens when I follow Jesus is it's not all smooth. Sometimes it's actually even chaotic. Sometimes he calls me to do things that are very outside of my comfort zone. And yet when the kingdom of God comes down, God actually works through that. And so Jesus is not safe, but he is good. Second is this. That Jesus in the kingdom says no. At times, Jesus says no. This man who is now sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, when Jesus is about to go, he says, can I come with you? He's asking him to be like his disciple, to follow him. Wouldn't you think, I mean, I, reading that, I would have thought Jesus would absolutely say yes. Who would he say no to? But in this case, and we're not even told why, but in this case, Jesus actually says, no. Don't come follow me and be my disciple in this kind of intimate following. He doesn't say, don't follow me. We'll see that in just a second here. 
But in this case, he actually says no. And probably I'm guessing that I'm not the only one who struggles with hearing no. From like child to teenager to adulthood, it's a struggle all the way along to hear no from anybody, let alone from God. And yet there's times in the kingdom of God where through experiences, through a lack of peace, through a lack of resources, through, you know, in Christianese we call it through doors closing, whatever it is, God says no to us. But I want to tell you, when God says no to you, he is not saying no to the kingdom of God. But we are trusting that in that no, somehow he's working out his purposes. Somehow his goodness is still there. And so we need to actually learn to hear the word no. And then lastly, and to conclude here, the third one is that Jesus calls the man and he calls us to start small. What does he say to him in verse 19? Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go home to your friends. Don't go around. Don't go to all, all other places. Start in the place where God has you and see where it takes you from there. There's a famous coach, John Wooden. He was like uh, like a coach for the UCLA Bruins, college basketball, really famous, won like 10 championships with them in the 60s and 70s. I think he was voted like best college coach maybe ever, okay? He was like, everybody knows him really well. And there's a famous story of him sitting down with his players every year, these fresh players, you know, freshmen, seniors all coming back, and they would sit in the locker room and everybody's kind of like anticipating, okay, like, what's the first thing? This is John Wooden, UCLA coach. Like, it's got to have, like, some amazing thing for us to do to get ready to be a part of. And he would sit them down and he would tell them, take off your shoes and your socks. The first thing I'm going to teach you is how to put on your socks for a game. And everybody would kind of like, they would do exactly that. They would kind of like snicker. They're like, come on, we should be like working plans out. And John Wooden said... I need to teach you how to put your socks on properly. If you don't put your socks on properly, you're not going to put your shoe on properly. You're going to play the first game. You're going to get a blister on your foot. You're not going to be able to join the team in game two, three, whatever. We're not going to win the championship. Put on your socks properly. Jesus is telling the man, he's not telling the man to don't, you know, don't go on global missions. Don't go anywhere. Don't be a part of these big things that God is doing. But what he's saying is actually the kingdom of God works through the ordinary. The kingdom of God works through the basics that God gives to us in the places where we are. And so we see the kingdom of God breaking into this manifestation of darkness. And it is not hindered. It has actually moved forward. I'm going to invite Laura up here, and we're going to conclude the message. She's going to sing a song called His Name is Jesus. And I want you to listen to the lyrics. I'm not sure if we have them on slides, but if we do, just um, read, read along as Laura sings the song. And to kind of conclude this message, be reminded of the power and the authority of Christ in your life 
and in our society, in our world, and remember that our hope is in him. If you want, you can join Laura or you can just listen and then we'll have one more concluding song after that.